Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. I rise today to nominate the gentleman from California, Kevin McCarthy, as Speaker of the House. I rise to nominate Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House. Madam Clerk, I rise to nominate Kevin McCarthy. I rise to nominate the gentleman from California. Madam Speaker, I rise to nominate Kevin Mark Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. I rise today to nominate Kevin McCarthy. I rise to nominate Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House. I rise to nominate Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House. I rise to nominate Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. I rise to nominate Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. Madam Clerk, to nominate, to nominate Kevin to nominate someone? Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House. Gates. Donald John Trump. Trump. Lordy, after 10 ballots and now into an 11th, there is still no speaker. They even nominated Donald Trump today. But as usual, he lost. And that is where we begin tonight on yet another day and night without a speaker of the House. It wasn't lucky number seven for Kevin McCarthy or eight or nine or 10. But he has made history surpassing the number of ballots needed the last time a speaker wasn't chosen on the first ballot 100 years ago, after appearing to have failed an 11th vote this hour. The same 20 ultra-conservative holdouts, who we cannot say enough, have a huge Venn diagram with the attempted insurrection against Congress, continued standing against McCarthy, despite his having been their biggest protector. Florida Congressman Byron Donalds, one of the members who voted against certifying the 2020 presidential election, continued to get the support of most of McCarthy's detractors. And apparently, not happy with being called Never Kevins, Lauren Boebert nominated Oklahoma Republican Kevin Hearn. We need to get to a point where we start evaluating what life after Kevin McCarthy looks like. America doesn't want more talk. But after 10 votes, it is still Lauren Boebert and her 19 colleagues looking for life after Kevin. And we should know that we have been here before. A small group of ultra-conservative Republicans holding Congress hostage. Remember the Tea Party, the original oppose-everything-insufficiently-conservative faction? Back in 2011, they opposed raising the U.S. debt ceiling, the federal government's ability to borrow money, demanding significant spending cuts across the board, cuts that would have hurt food stamp recipients and veterans and the elderly. And they opposed then-House Speaker John Boehner's efforts to strike a deal with President Obama's White House because compromise with Democrats was and remains a dirty word. Boehner was able to work out a deal just days before the U.S. would have defaulted on its debts, plunging the economy into a recession or, or worse. But the brinksmanship caused a downgrade in the United States credit rating for the first time in American history. But the Tea Partiers didn't stop there, nor did they give up on their other obsession, eliminating the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. In 2013, North Carolina Congressman Mark Meadows, now that's a familiar name you should remember, pushed a plan to tie dismantling or delaying Obamacare 
to the bill to fund the government for the next year. With the help of newly elected Tea Party Senator Ted Cruz, they got what they wanted. Here is how NBC Nightly News reported at the time. Good evening. A good number of Americans probably wondered at one point today, what must we look like to the rest of the world this first full day of the first government shutdown in close to two decades? Blaming each other and unable to agree, both parties in Congress gave up and went home last night. What's happening right now in Washington has been a long time coming. It's being driven by a committed core of Republican members of Congress who are all but assured of re-election in their districts and just can't be conservative enough for many of the folks back home. This is about the divide in our country, the end of the old chain of command in Congress, and anger over Obamacare mistake. The two partiers were giddy about keeping the federal government frozen. On the eve of the shutdown, Tea Party Caucus founder Michelle Bachman told the Washington Post, quote, we're very excited. It's exactly what we wanted and we got it. Well, fast forward nine years and one of the holdouts against Kevin McCarthy, South Carolina Congressman Ralph Norman, said McCarthy would have to commit to shut down the government rather than raise the debt ceiling in order to win the support of his opponents. But in the midst of today's votes, negotiations between the pro and anti-McCarthy factions, they have continued behind the scenes in hopes of ending this Republican impasse, with sources telling NBC News that a deal could be close. Joining me now is MSNBC Capitol, correspondent, Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitale. We keep hearing, we're close, we're close, we're close. We've been hearing that for days now. How real is the we're close this time? <laughs> They think more real than it was in the past, but I guess we're going to see because they're still doing these rounds of ballots, which, frankly, Joy, have almost become background noise here as the folks that are in this room are negotiating on behalf of Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy hasn't been in the room for these negotiations. Instead, downstairs from where I am in Tom Emmer's office, members have been shuttling in and out all day, only taking breaks to go up to the floor, cast their ballots, and then come right back down. It really underscores the entire reason that we're in this position when half the people who are in the negotiating room are only leaving to go keep casting votes against the guy that they're in the room negotiating to be for eventually. So that has been the real mood here on Capitol Hill. Many of those lawmakers have been mum as they've been going in and out. But what our sources are now telling me and others of us on our team tonight is that they are close. But this deal that they're hashing out right now, which they they talk about as putting meat on the bone and actually putting it in writing so that people can read the concessions that are being made, among them are the idea of one member being able to trigger that motion to vacate, the ability to basically oust the speaker. That's something that McCarthy conceded on overnight last night. That's, of course, still on the table. There's also the prime committee slots on things like appropriations and banking and, of course, the all-important rules committee. So all of that is getting on paper tonight. But what one member who's in these negotiations told me is that this is really their phase one. It's their attempt at trying to show they can break the stalemate. McCarthy can get some forward momentum on one of these coming ballots. We'll wait to see which one it is. And then the idea, once they break a few votes free, is not that they have enough to get the speakership tonight, but that they have enough to adjourn for the weekend, because what they're about to run into is the idea that a lot of people have things to do this weekend that they will otherwise be absent from Congress for. Everything from funerals to births of new babies to debutante balls are the excuses that we have heard as we've been canvassing our sources up here on Capitol Hill. 
And you know this well. In a numbers game like this one, you can't have absences for any reason because it changes the entire calculus. So that's what they're working on here as they go up against the clock. I imagine I'm going to be here for several more hours. (laughs) We're all going to be here for several more hours because the balloting is going to continue until we see some shaking loose of the numbers and then the motion to adjourn being able to be passed. You'll know this. It's not a given that they're able to adjourn because Democrats aren't going to help Republicans out here. And all Republicans would have to be on board to do this themselves. That's what we're waiting to see as this shakes out. But again, another day that looks same, same, but different here in the House. Yeah, you need a majority of those present. (laughs) So if anyone leaves, it changes the number. (laughs) Uh, MSNBC's Ali Vitale, you know the drill. If you get any new information, wave your hands in the air like you just don't care, even though I know that you do care, and we will come right back to you. So don't go too far away. You got (laughs) it, you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you. Okay, let's bring in former Republican Congressman Francis Rooney of Florida and Michael Steele, former RNC chair, MSNBC political analyst and host of the Michael Steele podcast. Michael, my friend, I got to go to you first because it's like deja vu all over again. Is that the, yeah. <laughs> is that the same? Because you lived through the first iteration of the Tea Party. And the reason I started out talking about what happened with the government shutdown, they actually shut it down again in 2013, was that this was about an ultra right wing group of politicians who were new to politics and who, as Lawrence O'Donnell described it last night, had a kind of magical thinking that they could come to Washington and suddenly they could make the Department of Education go away, right? Like they could defund the IRS and do all these things. Well, lo and behold, this fight with the the same group, the Freedom Caucus, what what the Tea Party turned into, these are what they're asking for. This is what McCarthy's agreed to, a motion to vacate the chair upon one member's support, meaning one person could essentially do a vote trigger a vote of no confidence at any time. Um, Representation for the Freedom Caucus on committees, including rules, meaning the Tea Party and the people who supported the insurrection would make the rules for the House. No leadership involvement in safe Republican primaries primaries that are open seats. And that's because McCarthy's PAC supported some moderate-ish Republicans against some people who would be considered far-right. And then you have a church commission-style committee to target weaponized government, meaning they want to investigate things like the FBI for trying to get the classified documents back from Trump. When you look at that, and also they want they want major cuts to future spending bills, which is what the Tea Party wanted too. They want to trigger gutting government. They want to cut food stamps and other things and have must-pass administration to stop Biden from doing whatever. This feels to me like this is just a continuation of the Tea Party fight. And that in the end, the Tea Party and the insurrectionists have won. Well, it is and it isn't to some degree. I, I think that, you know, the Tea Party that I that I uh, was involved with in 2009 and 2010, the vast majority of those members are no longer in Congress. That 63 seat majority is gone. In fact, the majority of that 63, those 63 seats were not effectively Tea Party members per se. Um, it was about a third of that organization of that group. So you're looking at some of the remnants uh, in, narratively. Um, this is very different, though. The, the the emphasis and the thrust of it is very different um, than than what we've seen. Um, the one common thread, though, Joy, that's important for folks to really understand and contextualize, and the congressman I know will appreciate this, is that there are a lot of folks. Um, who for for many, many years, not just in this moment, but going back 20, 30 years, going back to the Reagan term, um, who felt that the Republican leadership in the House especially, 
which is le- which led to the growth it, it, to the what we saw in 19, uh, 1994 with Newt Gingrich, um, felt that the leadership in the House never paid attention to what their cause was, what was important to them about their appro- approach to governing, their approach to spending, their approach to the Constitution. And so there were two things that were always at stake. One was respect for what we think are valuable, the things we see as valuable, and two was leverage. Where do we get the leverage? And we saw in the last two big speakers fights, they came, they fell short on both. Now they have both and they're using it. They're using the respect that they've gotten and that's put them in that position by their base voters outside of the Congress and using that to create the leverage on Kevin McCarthy. Um, and, and so that's when you look at that list. Um, it's interesting, particularly if you put the list back up, I can tell you one little thing I find to be very funny was when they're talking about, you know, how they want to position uh, the power and the structure of things. Uh, I remember going to the Tea Party and saying, look, you can't take out my incumbents, right? <laughs> We're not going to win these races in these other states if you keep challenging us in our so they were doing exactly what kevin mccarthy they accused kevin mccarthy of doing (laughs) to them now they were doing to the party in 2010 and so i had to negotiate with them you get behind the our incumbents if you guys win the primary we'll stand behind them but we can't go at this fight in which you take out, uh, you know, guys like Mike Castle across the country in races where we know we're not going to keep that seat otherwise. Yeah. So that's that's where we find ourselves right now. Well, they took out Eric Cantor. <laughs> it was the other one of the young guns, right? The three young yeah. guns were Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, and Kevin McCarthy. So, I mean, the, the, yes. the irony, uh, welcome to the show, uh, Congressman Rooney, former Congressman Rooney, because that's kind of the irony, right? You had this Tea Party group who they were outside of government people who wanted to come in at the base level, who really wanted to cut government to the bone. And the people who agreed with them at that were people like the Koch brothers who are willing to fund things like the Tea Party Express because they also would like to cut government because they don't want to pay a lot of taxes, right? So they had a common goal. But their thinking was that the reason that you couldn't get rid of the Department of Education, the Department of Energy, and just get rid of it is that Republicans just weren't fighting hard enough. This will be familiar to a lot of liberal Democrats who say the same thing about the Democratic Party, is that if they would just fight harder, right, they could do certain things. But the things that the far right wanted to do. I mean, let me just read you this real quick. This is a dear colleague letter on the demands to check the Biden agenda. And this is in December. Um, they they want to end vaccine mandates, but also reinstate and protect discharged service members. So get rid of the vaccine mandates. The farm bill must reform food stamp welfare programs and block Chinese government land buying. The debt ceiling must implement spending caps. Appropriations <laughs> bills must utilize the power of the purse to actually stop the border insurgency, restore energy freedom, block the hiring of more IRS personnel. It's magical thinking to think you can simply stop the hiring at the IRS, somehow make the border stop having migrants coming. But they believe that if they had the right leader, they could do it. They're they're crazy. Okay, when I was there, I was the only member out of 435 to vote against every farm subsidy. There were as many Republicans as Democrats voting for all this garbage. And Michael Steele knows that in spades more than I do. We have a schism between left, 
between hard right and conservative Republicans, just like the Democrats have their schism. We just don't seem to be able to figure out how to handle it. I said to Nancy one day, if we had you, we would do a lot better than what we've done. Sure. <laughs> no, you're right. Because you know what? You, what you said there, I think, is so smart. You can them together, man. It's right. And because right. if you had the right leader is, is, is actually an important point, because there is nothing more herd of cats diverse than the Democratic Party. It's every kind yes. of person. It's racially diverse. But, but it's regionally diverse. Difference. But they have Nancy Pelosi. Yes. And she believes in things. That's true. Right. Kevin McCarthy has never introduced right. a bill. He doesn't have any policy chops, no views, no nothing. He's Lyndon Johnson on steroids here. And, and that's a problem. How do you lead with no principles? Nancy Pelosi has great principles. Yeah. No. Paul Ryan yeah. had great principles. Real quick, lightning round. How do you think this ends, uh, Congressman Rooney, knowing these folks? How does this end? Does Kevin McCarthy end up getting well, the speakership? I, I would say, first of all, the war of attrition didn't work out for Hitler or Napoleon. Let's see what McCarthy can do. It depends on the never McCarthy people. Are they tough enough to hold out? Because if yeah. they are, the white knight's going to come from left field. And I'm sure Michael Steele can elaborate on this better than I can. But there's a couple of white knights lurking out there waiting to pounce. And yeah. they're ready to go. Spill the tea, Michael I, Steele. How does this end? Yeah, I think Congressman is absolutely right. Uh, there are stalking horses who are stalking carefully. They do not want to be positioned as if they're trying to take out Kevin. Yeah. They want Kevin to take himself out by virtue of mm, not exactly. being able to negotiate the deal. And yeah. when that collapses, that's why we're now in the 11th vote. Yeah. Trust me, Kevin, if you didn't Can get I say it one in more the comment first 10, maybe. <laughs> Go ahead. Last word to you, Congressman. Your, your, the fellow that came on before we came on, when he said, what must we look at to the rest of the world? Whoa, was he underestimating now? <laughs> <laughs> Super I sad. Mean, we look disorganized. I mean, I, I, I will use that. I'm, I'm going to be nice. I, I'm going to try to be Christian with it. We look disorganized. Michael Steele, we'll be seeing you again in a bit. Former Congressman Francis Rooney, thank you very much. We are continuing to watch the House floor tonight where Kevin McCarthy appears to be losing vote number 11 for speaker. He's going to go for a, a good dozen. We'll see after a short break. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. While the group of 20 Republican insurrectionists continue to hold the speaker's gavel hostage, much to the frustration of their colleagues, they are receiving the support of a very powerful and little-known conservative group. Now, we told you last night about a letter encouraging this stalemate from the Conservative Action Project, 
a group that includes Jenny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, as well as Cleta Mitchell, both of whom helped or encouraged the MAGA insurrection. This group is a division of the Council for National Policy. It's a group you've probably never heard of. But for the last four decades, it's worked in the shadows as the secret hub of the conservative movement, where the mainstream and radical right mix to set their agenda and to try to move the country in their direction. Their goal is to create a, quote, moral rebirth of our society along the lines of the Christian far right. And they use their members' vast right-wing networks to see it through. Robert O'Hara of The Washington Post did a deep dive into this group, writing, in their quest to remake our country, to purge it of the cultural and political decay they believed has sapped it of its virtue, CNP members are looking backward to receding triumphs. But it's clear they're also looking forward. And they are as determined as ever to shape the nation's future. Joining me now is Robert Jones, president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and my friend. Um, Robbie, tell me about this group. Uh, well, you're right to say it, it, it's a, an important and powerful group that has this very innocuous name, right? Yeah. The, the, uh, yeah, the Council for National Policy, right? In the Sounds sub- fine. Uh, but this is a group, um, uh, the Conservative Action Project, that met weekly inside the Trump White House and was influencing everything from agency appointments to judicial appointments. And then they were carrying water back out uh, from the Trump administration. If they needed, the Trump administration needed help uh, getting support, they were calling out the foot soldiers. And yeah. it is this mix of, you know, uh, political activists and operatives of Christian right uh, organizations like the Eagle Forum, Phyllis Schlafly's uh, organization, the Family Research Council, kind of, you know, all the who's who the, of the Christian right. And they do share this this vision of the world that you described fairly accurately. And, you know, the the, the head of it, Bill Walton, it was known as saying, like, to his own people yeah. in a kind of speech, this is a spiritual battle. We're in. It's about what good and evil. Yeah. What do they um, want to change about society? You know, I, I really do think it is. You'll hear this reclaim, restore, revive, all this backward uh, sounding thing. And and to talk about today, it's an apocalyptic hellscape, right? Yeah. Today, we're looking backward to this supposed supposed golden age, and it really it can't be summed up. It really is this lurching back the country to this kind of vision of a 1950s white Christian America that yeah. they feel is slipping away. Let, let me play. This is the um, Council for National Policy Executive Director. His name is Bob McEwen. And this was during a 2020 meeting about their involvement, as you mentioned, with Trump's White House. And yeah. is what he said. We have a representative from the president uh, every week. In fact, the, the president got tired of everybody coming to our meetings. So now we meet at the White House one week a month, uh, one week a month for the purpose of helping him in, in the goal. So when, when uh, legislation is stymied or when something needs to be done, as you're going to hear testimony here in just a few moments, that's what we do. I think a lot of people don't understand why Donald Trump, who was as irreligious as it gets, I doubt he's ever set foot inside of a church, maybe when he got married, I'm not sure, Um, but why he is so fanatically supported by evangelicals, but it is because of that open door. I think it is, and and Trump made an open play, right? If you listen to his stump speeches at the end of the campaigns, he he was always talking about, I'm going to restore power to the Christian churches, by what he meant, white Christian yeah. churches when he said those things. They're, they're still at it, though. So because the question of why they would be against Kevin McCarthy, mm. there was a gentleman um, who, who posted. His name is David Armiak, um, and he's from the Center for Media and Democracy. And this is what he, he wrote on Twitter. Here's the agenda of the May 2021 Council for National Policy meeting where Representative Byron Donalds, who we know was nominated by 20 members of the anti-McCarthy caucus, where Do- Byron Donalds spoke at a panel with uh, Mitchell and Blackwell, Den- uh, Blackwell, who's one of the people, former Ohio Secretary 
Secretary of State, Kenneth Blackwell, attending the national effort to protect voting rights. So they opposed voting rights. Um, Representative Chip Roy, who introduced and nominated Byron Donalds, spoke on a panel at Bourne Security at that same event. Then he turns around and nominates Donalds for speaker. So it's not coincidental that you've got Chip Roy and uh, Representative Donalds They've come together before under this umbrella. No, that's right. And you've also got this group that was um, uh, basically supportive of the insurrection, right? Right. And calling into question, uh, it was kind of an instrumental. Jenny Thomas, right, a prominent member go. of this group, uh, instrumental in the whole Stop the Steal uh, you know, movement and kind of allegations of voter fraud and that Biden wasn't really president. And all but two of these 20, right, are themselves election deniers. So right. it all kind of is a package uh, here. And I think it's important to say, like, um, that part of this animating thing, if this is a spiritual battle and it's a battle of good and evil, like, this is a fundamentally anti-democratic sentiment. Right. Right. And, and he went ahead and spelled it out in that quote, right? Yeah. And he said, and we can do whatever it takes to win, which is, of Including course, justified if you think God is on your side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's those those are not the principles or values of democracy. Those are the values of a theocracy. I think the thing that a lot of people it, it, we, we talk about this a lot in our show meetings. It's one story. The insurrection, yeah. the evangelical right trying to take over the uh, taking down Roe v. Wade and trying to reshape the society. It's one story. It's not a bunch of stories. And the same insurrection yeah. movement is now, as uh, Lawrence O'Donnell said, the yeah. insurrection is inside now. Yeah. And, it's inside the Capitol. Yeah. And just this one little provision, which looks very technical about not opposing uh, open seats. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it really is about cementing. Um, you know, these conservative candidates, ultra conservative right wing candidates. Yeah. And then the GOP cannot play a moderating force. Yeah. Right. It's about handcuffing yeah. the party yeah. to submit this further far right takeover yeah. by these far right. candidates. And then making it hard to vote. There yeah. you go. Robert Jones. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thanks. you. The voting continues on the House floor tonight as Kevin McCarthy appears headed. Whoa. Toward an 11th loss. Former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki joins us next. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. will address the crisis at the border that's killing Americans by the day and improve both our safety and our nation. This side is going to bring that border security under control. We want to secure the border. We don't want the executive branch to do everything through a pen and a phone. Republicans love to talk about immigration and the crisis at the border. And while it makes for dramatic and sometimes tragic political theater, and really whatever you think about the issue, wherever you fall in it, the kind of heated rhetoric that you hear from the party about immigration and the border doesn't actually solve the problem. And here's the thing. It's actually been pretty clear for decades that most in the party don't actually want to solve it. 
for decades, Republican members of Congress who are literally tasked with writing legislation to fix the broken immigration problem have repeatedly failed to come up with any serious legislative proposals. This morning, President Biden, who sent Congress an immigration proposal on day one of his administration, told Republicans to get on board or get out of the way. I'll sit down with anyone who in good faith wants to fix our broken immigration system. And it's hard. It's hard on the best of circumstances. But if the most extreme Republicans continue to demagogue this issue and reject solutions, I'm left with only one choice, to act on my own, do as much as I can on my own to try to change the atmosphere. Immigration reform used to be a bipartisan issue. That warning came back with action that includes an increase in border agents, asylum officers, and immigration judges. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, the guy tasked with managing the border and the guy Republicans want to impeach, detailed tougher enforcement measures that the Biden administration was taking at the border, which would allow agents to more quickly expel some migrants. President Biden also said that he would travel to El Paso, Texas on Sunday on the border. Joining me now is Jen Psaki, former White House press secretary and an MSNBC host, who we're very, very glad to have, uh, and, and my neighbor in the building. <laughs> yes, and my neighbor. My neighbor, right. <laughs> so, I mean, th- this is the thing that's kind of confounding, mm-hmm. right? Because we've heard this rhetoric really for decades yes. about the border and immigration, and it, it never comes with a then and. And the one time Republicans seemed to actually say, okay, let's fix it, was the Gang of Eight. Right. That was when Marco Rubio, John McCain, two other Republicans and four Democrats came up with a plan, and then... Rush Limbaugh yelled at Marco Rubio and the plan fell apart because he turned against it. Mm -hmm. So what is the evidence that Republicans want more than the the issue for their, you know, to to gin up their electorate, that they want a solution? There there is none. I mean, (laughs) you teed me up there, but there is none. Uh, They love this as a political election issue. And there are members and and people, candidates running for office in states that are nowhere near the border, that run on the border as their primary issue. So that tells you a lot. What is true, and what I think most people agree on, Democrats, Republicans, non-political people, is that the system's outdated. It's broken. It needs to be fixed. The Asylum processing system is underfunded. It doesn't work. Uh, there's not enough security at the border, or not the right kind of security, I should say, right. at the border. The wall was never going to work. It was insane. Yeah. But that's not even the right kind of security. So there could be an actual policy substantive discussion here. Yeah. There won't be. There will not be. It's yeah. all optics and politics for them. Right. I mean, you know, flying migrants to land, you know, sit them at, you know, Vice President Harris' doorstep. Using human beings as props. Yeah, that is what they are doing. Ripping children from the arms of their parents. Let's not forget that was their policy just a few years ago. So, I mean, the thing is, okay. so if if you have a good faith desire to change to change the situation, the border, which is a problem, people just piling up at the Mexican border. It becomes a problem for states that have to handle the influx. Inhumane. States can't handle it. Yeah. It is a security issue in some places. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, President Biden, I call it Bidening. When he says, I'll sit down with anyone, that is true. He I means mean, he really it. Will. Right. So yeah. if, but, yeah. but if he were to come up with a solution, yeah. it would involve things like looking at those countries in the triangle yeah. and their economies and putting enough money in in terms of aid to those countries right. to make people want to stay. It would involve working with Mexico because yes. they have very strict immigration yes. policies and saying, hey, how can we stem that influx and not have people piling up in your country, on your side of the border, it would involve doing things that would be unpopular with the base of the Republican Party. So what can President Biden do? Because I don't see them doing it. What could he theoretically be doing on his own? 
it's limited. This is the yeah. challenge. Uh, this is the huge challenge President Biden has, right? And we saw Democrats in the Senate try to move forward on yeah. some immigration steps last summer, and steps that most people would agree on. Yeah. Taking care of those DACA kids. Who's against that? I mean, they also hate bunnies and ice cream, right? <laughs> that is that is something everybody should get their heads around. But really what is lacking here is is something from the other side. Okay, you don't like the asylum proposal. You don't like the DACA proposal. What do you like? Right. What's your alternative? So like, what does the trip to the border then get him? What does it get the president? It, get, it allows him to kind of brush that away and move forward. This has been one of the biggest attacks from Republicans, right? You haven't even been to the border. You haven't seen what's happened. He's vocalized and said it's a problem. It's outdated. It's yeah. broken. We need to fix it. That's why he put forward a plan on this first day. This allows him to say, I've been to the border. I've put forward a plan. What's in your cupboard? What are you putting forward? You know, the, one of the questions that I have had is, does the U.S. have a Latin America policy? Does it have a real Latin America policy? Because it does feel like this is an international issue, yes. not a national issue. It's not an right. issue you can solve by fixing something in Texas. In, in your view, has the administration put forward a Latin America policy that is coherent enough to do the to, to deal with the push and not just the pull? Well, it's a long-term process, right? And I think the challenge is it's not something you can solve overnight. This is something the vice president has done a significant amount of work on. There's a significant amount of resources that has been put into a lot of these Latin American sure. countries mm -hmm. to improve what is happening on the ground. But a lot of people are leaving desperate circumstances, yeah. humanitarian crises, Haiti, other Cuba, other places. Venezuela. And what the, Venezuela. And the challenge is, is that these are countries where it's harder to solve the circumstances and what's happening on the ground. Some of the proposals that have been put forward is allowing people to apply for asylum from within their country, right? Mm -hmm. So that they are not, if they can find a sponsor in the United States, they can come here, they can go through their asylum processing. So those are good. And those have worked in some capacities. But yeah, it's, it's challenging, Joy, and not yeah. something that any administration can solve overnight because it's going to take years to well, do that. And you've got also, oh, well, the, the, the issue of sort of hostile, uh, we don't have a lot of any time, but we have to come have you come back because you also have hostile governors in some states. I mean, Haiti, there are a lot of Haitians that just came to Florida. There's hostility to the arrival. Yes. And then you've got to deal with that, too. It yes. is a complex issue. There's a complex. Complex. <laughs> yes. Complex and politics don't always go together. Yes. Jen Saki, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Really Great to be here. You, my friend. And coming up, the voting just concluded for the 11th time. And Kevin McCarthy... Yeah, he appears headed toward another loss. Up next, the Republican speaker fiasco has exposed once again the right's craven use of identity politics to try to disguise the party's glaring lack of diversity. Uh, you don't want to miss this. You're gonna, we're going to get into this after the break. Republicans love to talk about black people in two specific ways. The first way is to boost the identity politics while patting themselves on the back. And for the first time in history, there have been two black Americans placed into the nomination for Speaker of the House. Which, of course, clears the way for their favorite tactic of misusing the words of a civil rights icon. Cue the one MLK quote they know. We do not seek to judge people by the color of their skin, but rather the content of their character. Ah, yes, we've reached the quote MLK portion of the program. And we see a lot more of that on MLK Day when Republicans who support voter suppression and book banning tweet about his legacy and that one disaggregated quote. 
We saw more cringy displays today when insurrection apologist Dan Bishop nominated Byron Donalds, who is black, as speaker, while sharing how angry he felt about being accused of using Donalds as a prop. That member-elect wrote and sent out to America that Byron Donalds is a prop. I've spent a good bit of time with Mr. Donalds, especially lately. He ain't no prop. And if he were a prop, he wouldn't be sitting where he's sitting. This is the tired, old, grotesquely racist rhetoric that we've seen far too long. Methinks the congressman doth protest too much. Never mind that Donalds supports voter suppression efforts, which disproportionately hurt black Americans. But since when do details matter? Any black guy will do, especially one who's very nice, big in stature, and goes along with the program. The second thing Republicans tend to do is to play the match game, matching impressive black Democratic candidates with black conservatives, sort of a they've got one, so we've got one gambit. They propped up Republican birther Alan Keyes to face Barack Obama during the 2004 Senate election in Illinois. They let Donald Trump pick celebrity running back Herschel Walker to run against Senator Raphael Warnock in Georgia because, hey, football. By the way, has anybody heard from Herschel Walker since the election? He never called us back about that debate. And now the far right is nominating Byron Donalds to counter the nomination of Hakeem Jeffries, the other black speaker candidate. You know, the one who's been in leadership for years and has won all 212 votes in his caucus 10 times in a row. Actually, 11. But when talking to two black folks, well, things get even more awkward and terrible. Just check this out. The conservative youth group Turning Point USA has an urban engagement activism kit. True story. Urban, meaning black, of course, featuring a poster of an NBA player most people have never heard of, who, of course, is an anti-vaxxer and refused to take a knee. Let's not forget the Fresh Prince-inspired pin, because, you know, the brother's definitely going to rock that. And white stickers modeled after a Drake mixtape from nearly 10 years ago. Look, Conservatives claim that they don't believe in identity politics, but they sure do play the game when it comes to black candidates. And real talk, it looks really self-serving and problematic, like they don't take black voters seriously, which might be why so few vote for them. Just a thought. I'm going to now bring in someone who knows quite a bit about this issue and also about the issue that we're watching on the floor. And that would be one Michael Steele, who is playing double duty tonight, talking about this topic, but also what's happening on the floor. I do believe that we have uh, applause. And I guess this means that the voting for tonight is done. Kevin McCarthy has lost again. And I'm not sure. Well, let's just listen to see what's happening. The Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the state of California has received 200. The Honorable Byron Donalds of the state of Florida has received 12. The Honorable Kevin Hearn of the state of Oklahoma has received seven. The Honorable Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received one. With one recorded as present. No nominee having received the majority of the votes cast, a speaker has not been elected. For what 
purpose does the gentleman from Louisiana seek recognition? Madam Clerk, I move that the House stands adjourned until noon tomorrow. The question is on the motion that the House stands adjourned until noon tomorrow. Those in favor say aye. Those opposed, aye. Those opposed no. The no's have it. The yeas and nays are requested. Those favoring a vote by the yeas and nays will rise. A sufficient number having risen, the yeas and nays are ordered. Members will record their votes by electronic device. This will be a 15-minute vote. Okay, we are now going to go to the portion where they have each person vote individually so that they can count the yeas and nays uh, to confirm the chair's ruling that the nays have it, meaning they would not uh, recess, essentially, um, until tomorrow. Uh, let's bring back in Chairman Michael Steele. It, it, the noes are really loud. <laughs> the nays were really yes. loud, Chairman Steele. <laughs> They were really loud, and uh, this is going to be tough. I don't think um, you know you've got four Republicans who are going to say no, um, and uh, I suspect uh, this this motion will fail, and they will have to then uh, proceed with the twelfth round. And uh, at some point, the leadership of the Republican caucus, such as it exists are going to have to go to Kevin and say, dude, <laughs> seriously, um, where do we go with this? You, Donald's, who was at 20 coming into the day, is now at 12. So all of this, all of this hoopla around we're about have the opportunity to elect the first black, you know, speaker of the House. Well, if, if the Republicans want to do that, you got 200 votes you can give them. Well, you got you 200 votes you can give them. Or six. I mean, the reality is, is that what do you make of this? Just per what we were just what I was talking about a minute ago, the gambit of the uh, of the opposition to McCarthy, they have had a plan. And it's very clear that their plan was to put up Byron Donalds to match Jeffries, black guy for black guy, and say, look, you could just pick him. He's got, what, 19 votes or 17 votes. Jeffries has 212. He's six away. If they want to, yeah. if they really believe they want a black speaker, they could just give six votes to Jeffries, no? Well, and, and I would say that I don't know if that was so much a plan. I think that was an idea that was arrived at after the fact to make Kevin McCarthy and Republicans writ large in the caucus squirm. Mm. Because if that if that were the play, you lead with that play. That first day, you put his name out there and you set the table. That was not the case here. Um, and, and so you saw that Jim Jordan, everybody in the caucus know Jim Jordan does not want to be Speaker of the House. He wants to to sit on 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 uh, the the committee on that has the power on, yeah. on judiciary. He doesn't. He wants to investigate. He wants to stir the pot in other ways. So if you knew that going into this, the whole day wasted on Jim Jordan clearly um, was to set one level of tone. This became an afterthought with Donald's, which is why this was, for me personally, so offensive. 
because it was not serious. It was not genuine. Well, they followed it up today by having uh, the newly elected black Republican from Texas as their lead guy. And sort of it it does feel like they're trying to do an identity politics angle. And you think that's to embarrass Kevin McCarthy. It's it's pretty obvious. I'm not taking away from that. I agree with you on that. But that that again speaks to the unseriousness of it all, because none of these individuals, whether it's John James getting up and endorsing Kevin McCarthy and saying what he said. Or the fact that you've got uh, Donald's who's allowed his name to be placed in nomination after ever only for Speaker of the House <laughs> after serving one term in Congress. Right. Um, that that's the cynicism here um, that that that, in my view, overrides the politics where the politics is so offensive that the cynicism becomes the play. And, and, and I think the American people look at that and shake their head. I don't know how they intend to govern after this, Joy. Mm. Seriously, yeah. govern yeah. after this. Well, if, and the if, thing whether is, whether or not that was their intent in the first place yeah. is re- yeah. is is not important at this point. I mean, you know, Gates nominating Donald Trump. There is a, a level of unseriousness here that makes me worry about the debt ceiling, right? Because it, no matter, even if Kevin McCarthy pulls this off or whoever becomes Speaker, how on earth? Do they get through a debt ceiling, a debt limit fight with this group of people who, as you just said, are playing games, unserious, and their asks are all about gutting government and their job is supposed to be to govern, not to undo the government. Let's bring just one moment Ali Vitali. Stay with me, uh, Michael Steele. Ali Vitali is there. Give us a read on what's going on uh, on the floor, Ali. Yeah, well, we're watching these votes roll in in real time, Joy. And we were here last night at around the same hour as Kevin McCarthy and his folks tried to adjourn after a day of negotiating and losing multiple ballots. So here we are again. I think one of the things that's changed based on my colleagues that are in the chamber is that Andy Biggs and Lauren Boebert voted yes to adjourn. I believe that they were in the no category yesterday. So there is a sign that at least for some of the people who are actively negotiating, whether it's in good faith or not, with McCarthy allies, there's a desire to continue negotiating and perhaps do that without having to leave the room every 40 minutes to go vote again on another ballot that's going to fail for McCarthy. So we're going to watch these votes roll in. I will say you had people on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, um, saying that they— Everyone should stay in their seats. Everyone, No one could go anywhere because, really, you are playing a numbers game here when Democrats are not trying to help Republicans do this. But there is a big desire, I can tell you, just from seeing a lot of weary faces around this building on the part of staff, on the part of lawmakers, that they would like to at least press pause on this for a little while. And I think you're seeing that reflected in the vote total here Um and I think that's that's what we're watching. But, you know, the clock is ticking down and these members are making their choices known in, in the seconds that you and I are talking. Weariness, but not on the part of the Democrats. Democrats, I mean, they screamed no. They were quite loud. I mean, it sounds well, like they could do this all night. They could, but— even still, you look at this. So far, our friends in the chamber are confirming what the count up on the screen says, which is that no Republicans so far are voting against adjourning. I do think mm. it's important to note what they're adjourning and for how long. Right now, they're voting on adjourning until 
tomorrow at noon. Right. And that doesn't help them avoid the problems that you and I were talking about at the beginning of the show, which is that they could start running into attendance problems for mm. all of the number of reasons that you and I talked about. There are people who have funerals. There are people who have new babies. There are people who have other personal and family commitments that may they may not be willing to miss for this. And that right. makes Kevin McCarthy's team run into a, another numbers problem. Yeah, absolutely. Ali Vitali, thank you very much. Don't go far. I'm sure that Chris Hayes uh, is going to also avail uh, himself of your services. Uh, um, Michael Steele, last word to you on this, because no matter how many votes take place, the, the, the 20 shift around, but it, the 21, I should say, shift around, but it isn't getting smaller. It's gotten right. bigger since the beginning, not smaller. So all of this talk of them getting closer and closer to a deal, to my mind, that says with every discussion, Kevin McCarthy loses more of his hide. And if he manages to pull this off, and I don't know when this becomes, you know, four or three, which is what he needs it to be, he'll be essentially politically naked by then. It does, it, at this point, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I think— the American people need to understand fundamentally one thing, that regardless of whether or not Kevin McCarthy becomes the Speaker of the House, whomever the next speaker is, is going to be decidedly weak in the role. Mm. You have you have seen and witnessed over the last couple of days um, the, the, the growth and strength of a faction of the Republican Party that has asserted its, its uh, authority, if you will, on this House. Um, and that authority does not dissipate regardless of who's in the chair. And that more than anything else has fundamentally been the goal of those in the Freedom Caucus going back to the early days of the Tea Party, going back to the days of Newt Gingrich um, when they when they tactically uh, took down Democrats. They are now tactically taking down their own. And that yeah. tells you a lot about how they see this game. And unfortunately, it is for many of them at this point. It's extraordinary, extraordinary times. Thank you for being here with us for this moment. Michael Steele, thank you. That is my sure. Get the latest updates on this year's high stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.